Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 152 for July 19th, 2009. Have you ever dashed off a quick email, sent it, and immediately either realized that you had left out something really important, wished you hadn't sent the message at all, or noticed a misspelled word as the application was closing the message and queuing it for delivery. The bat, you may recognize that as my favorite email program, now comes to the rescue with what they call a delayed send option, and you get to choose the delay. Make it one minute, five minutes, 23 minutes, two hours, maybe a day, whatever, it's your choice. That's just one small reason why my favorite email program continues to be, as it has been for the past decade, the bat. The bat already had an option to schedule a message, write it in the evening and go to bed. Schedule the message to be sent at 2 a.m. tomorrow, telling your boss how happy you are to be working on this really big project, even if you have to stay up late to finish it. Meanwhile, you're sleeping. Okay, so there are better uses for this. But I'm sure that somebody already has used it or will use it that way. You do, of course, need to leave the computer on. And the bat has to be running for this to work as intended. The bat is popular in Europe, but essentially unknown in North America. It was released in 1997. At that time, I thought it had a great deal of promise, but I continued to use Eudora until about 2000. Then I switched to the bat. The program is a product of RIT Labs, which is based in Chisinau, Republic of Moldova. That's a region of the former USSR. The bat doesn't currently pose any kind of a threat, major or minor, to Microsoft Outlook, but it has several million users around the world, and I like it because the program can do just about anything. Scheduling, for example. Other email clients, such as Outlook, also let you schedule a delivery time for a single email, but it isn't possible to do this for all outgoing messages. Instead of specifying an exact date and time to send the message, you set a specific amount of delay. So when I think five seconds after sending a message that I really intended to add a comment that I forgot about, I can simply open the message and add the comment. This reduces the number of times that I have to send a second message that begins with, Oops, I'm sorry, I meant to add this little bit of information to my previous message. By default, no messages are delayed, and I don't see a way to apply a default delay using the graphical user interface, but it's easy enough to add the change to a message template. The advantage here is that templates can control an entire account or just a specific folder. The command to add a delay to the template involves the word postpone with a percent mark in front of it, an equal sign, and then in quotation marks, numbers for the number of days, hours, and minutes you want to delay the message. The bat has specific templates for new messages, for replies, for forwards, and for reading confirmations. So, for example, I might set a five-minute delay for new messages, replies, and forwards in my primary account, but allow reading confirmations to go without delay. In another folder... But with the same account, I could set longer or shorter delays for some or all of the message types. 
The combined flexibility of templates per message type per folder provides the kind of flexibility no other email program offers, and it's one of the primary reasons I use the BAT. The ability to delay messages is a feature that's new to version 4.2.6, which is a free upgrade to any user of version 4.1 or later. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a snapshot of one of my email accounts. It's my primary account. Virtually all messages to me come to this account, some to the specific address that the account has, others that are forwarded from forwarding accounts. The messages are all funneled through Spam Assassin and then sent to Spam Arrest. Spam Arrest picks up all the messages from the collector account, sorts them into good messages that are made available immediately and suspect messages from addresses that are not on my whitelist. These messages are then placed in a sandbox where I can examine them to see if I really want to receive any of them. The bat picks up all of the messages from spam arrest and sorts them into various folders. The sorting may be based on the address the message was initially sent to, so all messages to my TechBiter account go to the TechBiter folder. Clever, eh? In other cases, I have filters set up to look at the sender's address, possibly in conjunction with a marker of some sort in the message's subject, or possibly within the message's header information. The filtering system allows me to identify a message by the sender or the recipient, by specific text in the subject line, the message text, the header, by the size of the message or its age, or by its priority, and by a lot more. If it's a text comparison, the filter can look to see if the string I have specified is simply present or absent, if the string and nothing but the string is present or absent, if the text begins or ends with the string, and most powerful of all, there is a regular expression match. I'm not going to get into regular expressions. If you know what they are, you already know what they are. <laughs> and if you don't, I will simply limit my explanation to this. They are extremely powerful, but they're also extremely opaque. I think I have a couple of thousand-page books on regular expressions, and I still don't really understand how they work. Having clearly identified a specific message, the BATS filtering system can then move or copy it to a folder, export the message, extract any attachments, or print the message. It can delete the message, either locally or from the server, or both. It can capture the address. It can forward or redirect the message. It can create a new message, send an automatic reply or a reading confirmation, or play a sound create a scheduled event, set a flag which would indicate that I have read the message, that I have not read the message, that it has a high or low priority, that it is parked or not parked. That's just to name some of the actions that are available. The bottom line on the bat continues to be that it is the most flexible email program, and the current version adds even more useful features. I give it four cats. Why four cats instead of five? The only reason the bat earns four cats instead of five is its still-crippled help system that keeps many of the program's most powerful features locked away from users. A program this good deserves better documentation, and an online users group is able to answer nearly any question you might have about how to accomplish any task, simple or advanced, if you can put up with that list's oddities. <laughs> I'm a bit confused, and I'll have to admit that is my normal state. A service called Think Free says that it is better than Google Documents, which is free, 
and that it is better than Zoho, which is free. ThinkFree has that little word in there, free. But then it asks for $40, or maybe $25, if you want to use it. Now, free seems not to equate to $40, or even $25. Free, at least in my mind, equates to $0. Now, maybe I don't quite comprehend their meaning of free, but if that's the case, then the American Heritage Dictionary seems not to grasp the meaning either, considering free to mean, and I quote, costing nothing, gratuitous, for example, a free meal. So, what am I missing? Think free might be a worthwhile service that, and I quote their advertising message, allows you to access the documents stored in my office anywhere, anytime. But it's not free, really at least not in the generally accepted meaning of the word. I have no argument with ThinkFree's overarching concept, but I do with its name. I again quote the ThinkFree website. Have you ever received an important document that you couldn't open because your office program didn't know how to handle it? With the View Documents service, you can easily view documents that are incompatible with your current office programs. Among the file formats ThinkFree lists are Doc, dot rtf ppt pot pps xls xlt docx pptx xlsx pdf and hwp we'll come back to hwp in a minute doc is a standard word document file dot is a standard word template file rtf is the standard word transfer file ppt and pot both belong to powerpoint as does pps xls xlt now those are excel DOCX, PPTX, XLSX. Well, these are the Office 2007 versions of document, PowerPoint, and Excel files. PDF? Well, anybody can open one of those. So what's HWP? That's the only one that's left. According to Filet.com, HWP is Hangul Word Processor File. That's a Korean format. I don't receive too many of those. But that does give me a bit of a clue. Korea, huh? Where is thinkfree.com registered? Ah, here we go. Thinkfree, Guidong, Guanjingu, Prime Center 8F 546-4, Seoul. Ah, now I comprehend. If you're storing and sharing a high school English report, storing it in Korea might be just fine. On the other hand, if you're working on a top-secret government report, this would definitely be a bad idea. For projects between those two extremes, well, it's your decision. According to Wikipedia, ThinkFree Office includes a word processor called Write, a spreadsheet called Calc, a presentation program called Show, and a what-you-see-is-what-you-get WYSIWYG, that is, HTML and blog editor called Note. ThinkFree Office reads and writes Microsoft Office file formats. ThinkFree Office has a look and feel similar to Microsoft Word, Excel, and PowerPoint, providing a degree of familiarity to new users. That's the word from Wikipedia. Well, I am not currently a user of ThinkFree. I am also not a current user of Google Documents, Microsoft's online service, or Zoho. I probably will not be a user of Microsoft's upcoming online office suite either. Until further notice, I am planning to keep control of my documents on my computer. Okay, let's go here. I've got two reasons why Chrome will be a winner, or maybe a loser. 
Actually, I don't have any reasons for either of those. Ever since Google announced its long-anticipated operating system will be available sometime next year, all the pundits who have been saving up their 10 reasons why Chrome will succeed beyond Google's wildest dreams stories have started running them. And those who have been holding on to stories titled 10 Reasons Why Chrome Will Fail Beyond Microsoft's Greatest Hopes have started running those, too. In the past week, I have seen at least a dozen of these stories, including some that come down on both sides of the fence. Well, I'm staying out of the fray. I suppose I could whip up one of those 10 Reasons stories, or maybe even one of those fence-sitter things with five reasons why Chrome will succeed and five reasons why it'll fail. After all, if you've ever worked for any kind of publication, you know how much people love those X number of reasons why stories. So when Chrome arrives, I'll look at it, and then I'll make a decision about why it might succeed wildly or fail spectacularly. But in reality, I suspect it will do neither. For now, at least a year before the planned release, who cares? In short circuits, Twitter is becoming the poster child for poor security. If something can go wrong at Twitter, it seems like it will. According to the San Jose Mercury News, the latest problem at Twitter involved the theft of confidential business documents. For example, the financial forecast that suggested Twitter's revenues would increase from zero, currently, to $140 million by the end of 2010 and to $1.54 billion by 2013. The company also predicted 1 billion users by then. Other stolen files revealed the plans for Twitter's new offices. Now, does this sound like a pre-2000.com bubble-era plan? Call for a sleeping room, a playing room, a greenhouse, a meditation room, a bicycle room, a gym, a wine cellar, and an aquarium. Oh, and by the way, some of the information that was stolen, well, it resided online in Google Apps. No matter how good the security is, all it takes is one stolen username and password if the files are on a publicly accessible machine. If you'd like to read the full story, it's in the San Jose Mercury News, and you can get to their website from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Apple is a really nice company that's always going out of its way to help people who use its products, right? Well, maybe, if you never stray too far from the Apple tree. Apple has just updated iTunes so that the music manager turns a deaf ear to the Palm Pre. Palm's designers apparently working under the misconception that people who owned one of their devices might actually want to download some of their iTunes music to the Palm Pre, designed the device to work with iTunes. Well, Apple didn't like that. Plug a pre into a computer that's running iTunes, and iTunes will think you've plugged in an iPod or an iPhone. Or, more accurately, it would have thought that. It will still think that if you haven't upgraded to iTunes version 8.2.1. Apple addressed an iTunes issue with verification of Apple devices in that update. The fix makes the Palm Pre invisible to iTunes. See what a nice cooperative company Apple is? Workarounds do exist, at least on Windows machines, right now. Some will undoubtedly be developed for Apple computers. But the point is that the workaround should not be necessary. Apple should consider its customers first. Without its customers, there would be no Apple. 
Most of the rest of the economy remains in the tank, but Netflix seems to be doing okay. Growth is down, but at a time when stability is considered to be growth, real growth is unusual. But should this surprise anybody? When the economy tanks, people stop going to restaurants as much, so grocery store sales rise. They stop going to movies as much, so operations such as Netflix see increases. That's just the way things work. So at a time when rival Blockbuster is closing stores, Netflix is expanding. The company does a lot of things right. It's increasingly common, maybe because of the oddball selections I make, for Netflix not to have what I want in Columbus. So it has to be shipped from Seattle or San Jose or some other distant city. I always receive an email from Netflix telling me the movie I want is on the way, but it's coming from a long way away, and in the meantime, they're going to send me the next item on my list at no extra charge. In fact, there are times when I end up with four Netflix DVDs in the house at the same time. As well-positioned as Netflix is now, the company will have to keep an eye on the future. They have to do that because DVDs are becoming old technology, even the fancy new Blu-ray discs. The future is video on demand via the Internet. As Internet speeds increase, we'll see more video delivered that way. Pricing may be a challenge, though. If you write a DVD, you can watch it as many times as you want until you return it. With video on demand, what happens? If somebody else in the family wants to watch the same program tomorrow, do they pay too? What if you want to watch it again next week or next month? How about next year? Maybe you get a subscription for X number of dollars per month that allows you to watch up to Y hours of video. Or maybe a single fee per month, and you'll watch as much as you want. Whatever the solution will end up being, something tells me the folks at Netflix are thinking about these things today and preparing for tomorrow. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.